Have you ever been assigned a patient that winds up being not so cut and dry? Like those patients in acute care or the nursing home who have dysphagia but struggle to complete exercises or compensatory strategies because of their intellectual or developmental disability. Or the patient with respiratory failure who develops respiratory-driven cardiac arrest, gets intubated for 10 plus days, and is on a trach and vent. Oh, and he also has a history of stroke, congestive heart failure, COPD, diabetes, and traumatic brain injury. No textbook or single webinar could ever prepare you for that. But we have something that can help you get there, and it's totally free. On May 19th, the MedSLP Collective is hosting another never-been-done-before virtual summit titled Advanced Therapy for Complex Patients, a Medical SLP's Guide. Learn critical concepts with actionable steps you can take for those not-so-cut-and-dry cases. You can earn up to 0.8 advanced ASHA CEUs if you are or you become a member of the MedSLP Collective, and the recording is also available inside of the Collective. Ready to scale your clinical skills? Go to medslpcollective.com forward slash summit to register today. This is episode 223 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and today's guest is Dr. Lori Burkhead Morgan. She's been a practicing SLP since 1994 in a variety of healthcare settings, including a level one trauma center, inpatient rehab, outpatient otolaryngology practice, and as medical school faculty conducting research, teaching, and maintaining a clinical practice. She earned a PhD in rehab sciences from the University of Florida in 2005, focusing on applying exercise science principles to communication and swallowing rehabilitation. During nearly 30 years of clinical and academic endeavors, she has developed an expertise in evaluation and treatment of medically complex patients. Dr. Burkhead Morgan is a sought-after speaker, presenting both domestically and internationally. She is a published author on the topic of dysphagia exercise science as it relates to dysphagia. She is best known for teaching clinicians how to bridge the gap between research and clinical application. And this is such a wonderful, wonderful interview. I hope you guys all enjoy this, but um. I wanted to do this episode to talk a little bit about a course that she's going to be teaching for MedSLP education. If you want to go to MedSLPEd.com, she is actually coming to St. Augustine, Florida on Friday, March 11th to do an eight-hour course on trach, vent, and respiratory compromise for SLPs. Um, going to be such a wonderful course really, especially now in this time, you know, after COVID where we have so many patients that are just dealing with these lingering respiratory issues, uh, there's so much that SLPs can do. And she's got a lot to teach you about what we can do and how to advocate to be a part of the trach team at your hospital if you're not already. So if you're interested in signing up for that course, please go to medslped.com. That's M-E-D-S-L-P-E-D.com. Um, the recording will be available about a week later, but we would love to have you here live and hope to see you all soon. And I hope you all enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, a mobile fees business owner and founder of the MetaSLP Collective. This podcast is all about delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere. Whether you're a new clinician seeking tangible tools for treatment or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, my goal is to help ditch the old school ways of the past that no longer serve you or your patients, to reinvigorate your passion for our field, to broaden your knowledge about our scope of practice, and to inspire you to practice at the top of your license. So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride, be open and willing to learn, because let's face it, your patients deserve that kind of care. With that, let's dive right in.
Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Good morning, Lori. Well, good morning. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. Yes. And you're back for a second time. I believe you were on episode 80-ish something previously. I should look that up, but I didn't. But anyways, <laughs> tell the people a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm Lori Burkhead Morgan. I like to refer to myself as an in-the-trenches speech pathologist who also just so happens to have a PhD. Um, I am most interested in working with the, the critically ill patients or um, some of our more difficult cases like patients with head and neck cancer um, on tracheostomy and who are, you know, ventilator dependent. So a variety of, of diagnoses that are challenging are, are sort of my wheelhouse. Awesome. Awesome. All right. What, what are we going to talk about today? Great question. All right. <laughs> No. Well, I'm ex- I'm very excited about the course that I have coming up. Um, yes. I'm thrilled to be able to take a good deep dive into uh, how to work with respiratory compromised patients, uh, trach or vent dependent. And now we have this whole new diagnosis group of those that have had COVID, uh, either currently have COVID or have had it and have lingering effects of that. Um, so I'm really excited to be able to share this information that I know it doesn't really get covered um, or very little, if at all, in graduate school. And yet now, again, because of these diagnosis groups or these um, diseases, advanced diseases, um, I just said that really weird. <laughs> but um, because of the more challenging patients that we have on our caseload now, and particularly those that are in the ICU or have respiratory compromise, I think this is sort of the perfect timing to talk about these things and really provide the speech pathologist with all the things he or she has wanted to know and either has been afraid to ask uh, or is just, you know, kind of muddles through without the information. So, yeah. Yeah. So Lori is presenting a course for MetaSLP Ed. So it's MetaSLPEd.com on Friday, March 11th in St. Augustine. So it's going to be live in person, um, but it will be recorded. So the recording will be up about a week after that. Um, so if you're interested, check it out. But yeah, I, you know, people have been asking for, you know, I just need to learn more about Trig Invent. And then especially like you said, in COVID times, it just really exploded and, and, uh, there's just such a need for SLPs to not only understand what we're doing, but get your foot in the door and understand how to advocate for what we know how to do and how we can help these patients. And I think that's something I'm really looking forward to in your course too, is not just, you know, this is the anatomy and physiology that you need to know, but this is how you become part of a trade team. This is how you advocate for our services. And that's something that SLPs just, just need a lot of help with. Yeah. And I think what I, what I tell my students oftentimes is that it's, it's not that the team that you're trying to work with um, doesn't care or doesn't, you know, have the resource or don't have the resources, but it's a matter of just sharing the information with them. You know, I, I hesitate to say educate your peers because it sounds a little bit condescending, but I think it's just a matter of sharing this information and saying, I ran across these articles that are, you know, the data is showing that we can help patients cut down on ventilator days or decrease length of stay let's look at this together and see if it's something that we can implement. And I think that's really the unique opportunity for the speech pathologist is that we aren't just focusing on breathing. Um, There's more to life than breathing. And the communication and swallowing part of it is something that perhaps the respiratory therapists or the nurses 
or even the pulmonologists aren't focusing on, again, not because they don't care, but because they have so many other things to focus on. And they're really just looking at trying to keep this person perhaps alive uh, and, and, you know, move them forward from that medical standpoint, looking at the numbers. And I think that's our unique opportunity is to come in and, and say, okay, help me understand the numbers because I want to be mindful of that. But let's look at some other opportunities to help this person have a voice and participate in their care the way they're supposed to be. Or let's look at ways that we can actually help cut down on ventilator days or help wean them faster. So it's just, we're a valuable member of the team to be able to pull all those other pieces together and spearhead this effort. And I know that's challenging. Mm -hmm. I've been there, but along the way with, hate to say it, almost 30 years in the field now and, and listening to other professionals in other settings and, and the challenges they've gone through, both successes and, you know, maybe stumbling blocks. Um, I think that there's some good information that I can help share to get therapists to be that voice for their patients and really help rally the team to move them forward. Yeah. Yeah. I think what's so fascinating is, is, you know, obviously you want to have a good respiratory team wherever you're working. And I worked at a few LTACs that the the respiratory therapists were just so wonderful and so supportive. And, you know, they would say, you know, okay, we're going to get a valve on them. Come in, you know, let's, let's do a swallowing a valve. And it was like, they completely understood our worth, you know, and it just, the team just worked together like peanut butter and jelly. And then I've been to other facilities too, that they're like, oh, they're on a vent. You can't touch them. Yes. You know, and it's just, it's, it's like so gut wrenching to see like the, the drastic variations. And, and this is just something I'm so excited about because I just so badly want to get this information out there that yes, this is what you need to know. This is how you can help these patients. And this is how you get your foot in the door with these teams to help them as well. Yes. Well, I think the thing that has made me frankly, just crazy over the years makes me a little (laughs) bit nutty is that I've heard from both speech pathologists and respiratory therapists. So the two folks you would hope would have the most knowledge in this area, both of them, I've heard them say to me, well, we don't do that on vent patients or mm-hmm. they're too sick. Yep. But all of the data, especially when you look at critical care data, it talks about how early intervention, particularly with physical therapy, is important to the point that they're even ambulating patients that are intubated. I mean, there's data on this. And yet the upper airway musculature important for airway protection, swallowing and speaking, we kind of don't think about it because we don't see it, right? We see limbs. We see when someone can't toilet themselves, you know, the burden of that. But the speaking and swallowing and the musculature involving that, people just don't think about. And and so I think it's also just a fear-based reaction. I know therapists, whether respiratory or speech, who say we don't do that because they just don't have the experience with it. And the irony of it all is that, for instance, like the passive speaking valve was invented by someone who was a ventilator dependent person himself. The speaking valve was intended, its original intent was to be used on vent dependent patients. Interesting. Yeah. And and then we've got people saying, oh yeah, we use that, but it's not, we don't use it on the vent. Well, 
Why? Because it's a wild. Yeah, it's yeah, a that's intent. like we took so many steps backwards there. Right, right, and it's all fear based. So it's 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 either fear based or it's lack of knowledge. It's one of those two because it certainly isn't based in the facts. Yeah, yeah, and and now we have you know a a good body of data to show how this not only helps with speech. You know, it's it's not just this speaking valve. You know, it's a swallowing valve. It's a, it's a vent weaning valve. You know, it, it really has all those applications. And we have now, thankfully, um, the data to support those claims. Yep. Yep. Awesome. All right. Yeah. What do we, what do we need to know as far as anatomy, neurophysiology, all, all the good stuff? Well, I think all of the above. <laughs> I always am a little bit amused when, um, I step into my grad class and, and I say, well, we're going to blow through the first three hours of, of our class. We're going to blow through what should be a review of neuroanatomy of the speech and smalling mechanism, which obviously, um, includes the respiratory system, right? So speech and swallowing, uh, really, we've always heard that speech is an overlaid function of the respiratory system, right? But swallowing really is too. <laughs> so there's breathing and then there's swallowing and talking. And yeah, when I, when I start in on what ought to be a review at the graduate level, I get deer in the headlights. Um, and it's funny because they usually are too afraid to say, Oh, I don't know this or, you know, I really haven't learned this, but, um, we delve in and we get it knocked out right out of the way because right out of, uh, off the bat in the beginning, because if you can't understand the foundation, how are you going to understand everything built upon that? So we have the nervous system, we have the respiratory system, we have the way that those two things communicate with each other and how the nervous system and the muscles communicate with each other. The intricacies of this amazing system with timing and overlaid function and shared neural substrate. Once we get that, then we can really understand moving on. And I think that just makes for a, a more inquisitive clinician who can then ask questions and answer questions based on those foundational principles. I think we can't really talk about speech and swallowing unless we understand everything that drives it to get to that end point of those functions. So I'm super excited, you know, just to be able to provide that foundation that either people forgot or, or just weren't taught and either didn't have the time um, to ask because now they're busy clinicians thrust into a situation uh, where they have heavy caseloads. But um, yeah, so it's a time to step back, learn all of that, and then weave it into how to, what does this even mean for my practice? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think we, we have so many SLPs and I know I'm guilty of this myself, so I'm not accusing anybody, but it's sort of like, we just do things because that's the way we were taught to do things. You know, we were taught to put a valve on this way and look for these different settings and that's that. And to be honest, it was like, when I first started doing it, I was like, I don't know why I'm doing that. You know, I don't know mm-hmm. what what the underlying functions I'm really looking for. Like I learned so much from the respiratory therapist I worked with. And, and I, I'm so grateful for that because otherwise I don't know how I would have known what I was doing with these patients. I wouldn't have known, you know, but um, it just, it's so crystal clear that we, we just need maybe just a refresher if, if people never, you know, got, but I think, you know, some people that may have gone to grad school 20, 30 years ago, and now this is, you know, much more common. They just might've never gotten this material. So. Yeah. And it's definitely more common and we're going to see more and more of it because of um, COVID 
uh, and other associated infections and, you know, patients living longer and different exposures that we have now. So this is only going to become a bigger issue. But yeah, I, I agree that I think all of us who work intricately with trach and vent patients, I think it's probably 90% or more of us can trace it back to a respiratory therapist who took the time and had the inclination to work with us and to have that reciprocal education because the RTs don't necessarily understand fully what we do. And I don't think there's any way we can really fully understand what the RTs do. And I can trace that back myself um, in my CF working with respiratory therapists who were kind enough to teach me what they knew and then humble enough to see what I might be able to teach them. And I think that's really a unique relationship, but not everyone has access to that. So I'm hoping that I can maybe pass along what I was lucky enough to learn from other RTs and pulmonologists along the way. Um, but yeah, we, we don't get that. Yeah. So talk a little bit, Lori, about sort of our role in, in the team. You know, it's obviously we have a big role in just what we do individually, but I think on a much greater scale, I think a lot of what I tie a lot of career fulfillment for SLPs back to is, is feeling like a respected part of the team. Mm-hmm. And I think this is the perfect opportunity to show what we can do and to gain that respect. Yeah, for sure. I think it still is... Speech pathologists still sort of have that reputation of, you know, oh, here comes the speech girl, you know, or, you know, guy. Um, but here comes that, that person who's going to put your patient on thick and liquids or they're going to ask them stupid questions. I mean, I, sorry, but I, I've been referred to as that. Um, I think when we go in, I think first of all, we have to show, a comprehension and an understanding of the severity or the how sick these patients are that we're approaching and asking to do these strange things with. I've had respiratory therapists or nurses, you know, upon first blush say, you know what, I just, I just, I'm just really trying to keep this patient alive. <laughs> and they are overworked. They are understaffed. And Sometimes it's easier for them if the patient isn't talking. <laughs> you know, I mean, say that, but the nurses are overworked and understaffed. They're stressed. The same thing goes with respiratory therapists. I think most hospitals now are short on respiratory therapists also, and they're supposed to give breathing treatments at certain times and have to, you know, they have a schedule that they have to adhere to. So to have someone come in and have this perception that, Hey, I want to put a valve on. I want to take a chunk of time out of your day and go work with this patient on using their upper airway for voice or swallowing or whatever airway management. Sometimes I think they think we don't get it that they don't have time for this. I don't have time for that. You know, when they're off the vent, then we'll deal with it. What they don't understand is we can help them get that patient off the vent. We can help the nurse and the respiratory therapist do their job more effectively. So I think first we have to get that shared understanding and we have to somehow uh, present to them that we're not just here to feed patients pudding and ask them silly questions. We're here to help them get these patients moved out of the ICU. And I think the one of the ways that I 
feel that I've been able to break down that barrier is by the swallowing evaluations that I do and uh, particularly doing endoscopy at the bedside because they see us looking at the parts that they can't see. We can help them understand silent aspiration and, and what does this larynx do? Usually that's, I'll be honest. So doing a fees usually is where I get them interested and to understand that I do something other than feed them pudding and ask them questions. And I have seen referrals go through the roof after I've invited a, a nurse or a respiratory therapist in to you know, be in the room with me while I'm doing uh, uh, fees. So I think that's part of it is showing them that we are medical professionals. We aren't just a therapist, um, that we are medical professionals just as they are. Um, So I think getting that somehow on board, the other key that I've found, and this goes particularly for physicians, is to present papers, the published data. And even saying, again, respecting their time and say, hey, here's this article. Let me email it. Or you just so happen to have a copy on you. Give them the article and say, here it is. If you have time to read it, if not, if you want to just you know, check out the abstract, there's some really interesting data to show X, Y, Z, whatever it is that you're sharing. And, and then it's not coming from you as some, your opinion or just your your thoughts on this. Um, but if you can show the data, which it's great that we, we have that when I first started out in this, the, the data, particularly for the respiratory impact of our involvement with trach and vent patients, um, wasn't fully there, but we have a richer database now, um, or published data now. Um, so sharing that information. And I think really our role is uh, to spearhead the trach team. And the other part is to keep it going. Because anything that you implement, if there's not a person motivated as or identified as as the leader or the go-to person, and if it's not consistently carried out, it will die. And so I've seen this where an amazing therapist got a program started um, and they left and everything fell apart. Um, It's because people default to the easier path or the path that they know. And again, it, it may be not the easier path, but it's, it's the familiar path. And that's where, you know, going back to that concept that people sometimes aren't doing this because of lack of education or fear, they just default to, we've always done it that way. Can you talk a little bit about your paper that you wrote? It seems like quite a long time ago, but it's still very relevant. And so many SLPs still dig that paper up about why, why we should be involved with these teams. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, the, the first paper, the 2007, uh, paper that I wrote on, um, exercise and muscle function, um, in the upper airway musculature. Yeah, that one. And then I did write an update, uh, that was published in the perspectives, um, SIG 13 perspectives. And I think the biggest take home from those publications of mine, I think it's just that we need to, really understand the muscles that we work with, um, what drives the muscle, again, from a top-down perspective, knowing the neurology and neurophysiology and neuromuscular connections, mm-hmm. understanding what happens both in conditioning and deconditioning. So these are things that physical therapists or occupational therapists 
learn and understand and apply clinically. And we as clinicians, dysphagia clinicians, are told we'll exercise these muscles. But we've never really learned what is exercise, how do these muscles respond to exercise or lack thereof. So I, I'm, I'm happy people are, are really still using those publications to, to gain knowledge in that area because I think it, it really is foundational. If we are exer, if we're doing exercise treatment, we need to understand exercise. I think also the, challenge for us is that as the years have gone on since I published that paper back in 2007, we've started to learn more about how this unique musculature that we deal with has similarities, but also some pretty big differences from limb, skeletal limb musculature, which is, you know, what the PTs and OTs learn about. So we've, we've learned some things along the way that maybe it's skill that we need to be working on more than just gross strengthening and certainly a combination thereof. And I think we're really just starting to figure out how to use both of those. You know, what is the difference between strength and skill and, and how do they play into this very unique musculature? We're still in our infancy of learning about that, but um, yeah, I hope that those, those first articles will at least continue to spark an interest as um, clinicians and, and other researchers start moving forward to help us apply or not apply certain principles that work for skeletal limb, for PTs and OTs, and, and whether or not that, that could apply for us. Do, do you really feel like we're in our infancy with the strength for skill stuff or that we should know this stuff by now? Because um, <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we should know this stuff by now. Well, so. <laughs> yeah, I mean... Um, I think we're still in the early stages for sure. I think there's been some great work out of certain labs, certainly that of um, uh, Katrina Steele out of Canada. Um, Maggie Lee Huckabee is doing amazing work um, out of New Zealand and, and also the um, McNeil dysphagia program, I think also is, is really fantastic. So we do have some researchers actively working on how to apply these principles. Um, so yeah, I, I think we're still pretty early on, but I do think it should be basic knowledge um, that we have to understand the principles of neuroplasticity, specifically specificity, and knowing that tongue-wagging exercises aren't going to get you anything but better at tongue-wagging exercises. I mean, we've, we have been exposed to this concept for decades, really, early work by Jay Rosenbeck in, in dysarthria, he showed that, you know, doing tongue-wagging exercises really don't improve speech intelligibility. And there have been plenty of others who, who've done this work, too. So we've, we've known about this concept. I think it's just people, I don't know. I mean, I can't say people because it was me, too, coming out of grad school. I, I didn't, I did what my preceptors told me because they were my preceptors. And it wasn't until I sort of stopped in, in my CF, really, and where I was an independent clinician for the most part. And I had to think, well, why exactly am I doing this? Because it, yeah. um, and I do encourage my students to always question, which backfires sometimes because they ask me questions in class. Sometimes I'm like, wow. Shoot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's amazing. I love that. 
I love that. Um, and I do encourage clinicians to either question themselves. If they can't provide themselves an answer, find it. Yeah. Ask someone, you know, or better yet, really go to the literature and see what you can find. Um, and that means even going outside of our literature. And that's, that's what I've done with my career. And that's why I sort of felt like I had to go back for a PhD. I really didn't want to. Frankly. How long did you work before you did that? Uh, almost 10 years. Yeah. Almost 10 years. And I think it got to the point where I was like, I can't keep going with all these questions I have in my mind. I need to find the answers if no one else is going to. And, um, and it, it forced me. And so I, you know, my PhD is actually in rehabilitation science, um, from the University of Florida. And I worked, uh, hand in hand with exercise physiology. I had an OT, um, and a respiratory, uh, physiologist on my dissertation committee as well, oh, cool. as yeah. well as speech pathologists. Yeah. But I think that that's, that's the key too, because we don't have all the answers and we're still trying to figure it out. And I think looking at the other literature, like critical care medicine, like physical therapy, um, finding out what they're saying about early intervention and exercise. I mean, it is just standard of care now that physical therapists are consulted early in ICU, in an ICU patient stay, but not so much with speech pathology. Yeah. I think it wasn't until, oh gosh, maybe like five years out of grad school for me that it really hit me that there's a lot to this exercise science piece that we get zero education on. <laughs> and I, and I sort of couldn't believe it until I became like such good friends with the PTs and OTs that I worked with. And they, and I sort of was like humiliated because they knew all this stuff. And I felt like I should have known all of it the way that we were working together yeah. And, and, and I think that was sort of just like a driver for me to get to know, you know, more information about that. And I'm, and I'm sure obviously that was the impetus for your, for your PhD, but I still think there's just such a, a lack of knowledge around that this should be a much bigger piece to the puzzle for, for SLPs to know. Absolutely. That is exactly what drove me is that my colleagues working in rehabilitation had this base of knowledge and I did not. Um, so yeah, that, that definitely was it. I think it's really opened a door in our field to have us start thinking about this more critically and more thoroughly. So I hope grad programs will start incorporating, um, those concepts into their classes. I, I do it in my dysphagia class, but, um, hopefully in other, other areas, I know motor speech um, could definitely, uh, this could be these exercise principles and principles of neuroplasticity really should be injected into all of our education. So that's why I feel so strongly that before we talk about anything, that foundation has to be laid. Yeah. 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 So, okay. So let's, let's get into a little bit more of like the nitty gritty of, you know, respiratory physiology. I think, you know, we've sort of talked about why we need to know all this stuff and what our role is. And I really would just like to get into explaining some of it now. Okay. Well, if you have a couple hours, <laughs> yes, we do. We do. <laughs> well, we will go for we it. We will at the course. So yes, yes. at the course, I'll really get into the nitty gritty of, of, how the signal travels um, from the brain, what areas of the brain and those that are shared with swallowing drive the respiratory system. So I think it's a little more detailed than we can talk about here. Um, I will also be talking about uh, uh, oxygen exchange, blood gases, and how 
how someone breathes really affects all the other systems in the body. So that's, those are details that we'll get into when we've got the time to, but I think in general, I I really think that we as clinicians need to understand this really intricate interplay between breathing, speaking and swallowing. And there's been some great work done, particularly out of the lab of Bonnie Martin Harris about how this affects the swallowing physiology. And I think it's good for clinicians to understand we can affect change. So there's been some work to show that the simple retraining of respiration with breathing can make a difference on swallowing physiology. But I think we also need to know that it's our role to work on strengthening the respiratory muscles. Um, So the internal intercostals, the abdominal muscles that help produce forceful cough or loud voice that we can, we can affect change there also. So by doing that and working on that end organ of the muscles and the lungs, um, particularly the muscles that drive the lungs, that we can then have an effect on what's happening in the brain, which is the whole point of what we do as rehabilitation specialists. We provide opportunity for therapeutic movement or functional movement that causes the muscles and the neurologic system to adapt to this increased demand that we're doing. And so if a patient is unable to participate in the swallowing exercises you want them to do, a great place to start is with the respiratory muscles. So strengthening for cough redirection, strengthening for voice production, and then also strengthening and maybe more importantly, coordination during swallowing. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you. I will say this too. I think even when I was a student clinician, we utilized tapping into the respiratory system at least a little bit. I remember asking patients to blow cotton balls across the table with a straw or blowing up balloons, again, a little bit more resistance. So I think there's been sort of a um, a nod to us working with the respiratory system in some way. I think what's great in recent years is how we're learning more about how to do it in a more measurable evidence-based way and to challenge our patients because again, the default is, oh, they're sick. We can't work with them. Or I'm sorry, speech pathologist, our patients are too sick for your intervention yet. And I think now it's great to have the data to show, no, we, we really actually need to get in there and start challenging them because if not, they're going to continue to decondition, which affects not only the muscles, but the nervous system. And, and even if we go in and start some simple tasks, it's a known fact that if physical therapists go in and at least start range of motion exercises with these ICU patients, that there is a benefit to that. And I think that we as speech pathologists have some range of motion, if you will, exercises, which could be, let's just get them using their upper airway again. Yeah. Activating those muscles for secretion management. Um, it just activating the muscles period from a sensory standpoint 
And then once that starts to happen and we're sort of waking up that system, then we can start working on um, voicing and swallowing and, and other things. But we have range of motion exercises to offer the trach and vent dependent patient. We've just not thought about it. And I think we've not understood our value in offering these upper airway range of motion exercises, if you will. And I'm not talking tongue wagging exercises. I'm talking breathing, coughing, swallowing their saliva, resensitizing the upper airway. All of that are what I would consider those important, I dare say simple, um, simple but important functions, just like a physical therapist is going in and doing passive range of motion. Yep. It gets the ball rolling. Yeah. I think we learned, you know, I feel like we learned so much about that, like in voice disorders in grad school, and we just didn't really learn about the respiratory crossover with, you know, swallowing. It was, you know, you have to breathe in order to swallow. We all heard that, but I just don't think we really understood the deep, you know, exercise physiology involved in the respiratory system that affected swallowing as much as, you know, we talk about now, which is wonderful. So, yeah. So I think that our field has taken a step toward understanding this multi-system contribution to speech and swallowing. It went from, we were talking about muscles and we were talking about neuroplasticity. And now I think we need to talk about how we can start working with the respiratory system. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, I think speech pathology has been looked at as only a rehabilitative service, but we have the power to get in there early with our sickest patients who need us the most to help stave off the severity of their disorders so that when they do come to the point of rehabilitative activities, they're not as severe as they could have been, or we help them get there faster um, so that rehabilitation efforts happen earlier. The longer a patient goes with dysfunction or with inactivity, we do know this, the more dysfunction they'll experience and the more negative change that they experience from both a neuromuscular and a, um, well, from a neuromuscular standpoint. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I thought you were going to say and a psychological standpoint. <laughs> well, and that too. Sure. Yeah, yeah. You know, I do recall a patient, I have a video of her. Um, it's incredibly powerful and I like to show my students, but I have a patient who came to the inpatient rehab hospital I was working at at the time and she had an incomplete spinal cord injury. Um, she was in her forties, but she, um, had full dentures. So she came in edentulous and I was reviewing her chart as she came in and the, the notes from the acute care hospital said that, that a, a speaking valve was tried and she quote unquote failed, <laughs> which we have an issue with that term, yeah. but we'll skip over that for the moment. Um, so I went into her room and uh, we put on the valve and she did a lot of coughing to begin with because her upper airway was so full of secretions that she hadn't cleared. And we have to remember when we suction patients, we're suctioning below the vocal folds. Okay. So everything above the vocal folds just hangs out there and crosses over um, until it either is suctioned out transnasally, transorally, or the patient coughs it out. So I stuck a valve on her and she started coughing her head off. And, and I was like, that's awesome. Come on, hack it up. You know, get that cleared out. You got a lot of junk in there. Let's get it out. And 
she had this look on her face. Like I was a little crazy, which, you know, I, a lot of patients look at me that way. Yeah. yeah. Um, but we kept working and, and she eventually got to the point where, um, weeks later she was about to be decannulated and I wanted to get her on video just talking about how it was to wear a valve and what that experience was. And I had no idea that this had happened until here we were at the very end. And she looked at me and she goes, well, did I ever tell you about my double ear infections? And I'm thinking, okay, squirrel. (laughs) Right, 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 right. Yeah. And I was like, no, tell me about your double ear infections as I'm, you know, getting everything set up. And she goes, yeah. So when I first got here, I don't know if you know it, but um, I had double ear infections when I was in the acute care hospital, I was on that bed that turns side to side. So she was spinal cord injured. She was on the bed that rotates to help prevent pressure ulcers. And she said, yeah, I cried a lot so much so that the tears went into both ears. And as they turned my bed, my ears, you know, had, had tears in them or wet all the time. And I was like, I'm so sorry. And she said, well, you want to know why? She said, it's because I couldn't talk. And she said, I don't have teeth. And she was really cute. She goes, evidently, they don't teach nurses how to read lips in school. <laughs> well, but she said, but I know that I didn't have my teeth and it was probably hard to understand me being able to mouth things. And she said, I would blink once for yes and two for no. And then on next shift, I would blink once for no and two for yes. I didn't know if I was saying yes or no. The nurses didn't know if I was saying yes or no. Uh, she had one foot, it was an incomplete spinal cord injury. She had one foot that she could whack against the bed rails. And so she would whack against the bed rails. The nurses would come in and couldn't understand what she was trying to communicate. And so they left and she went, you know, however long she was in the ICU with this inability to communicate cognitively fully intact, relatively young woman. And she said, so I ended up here with a double ear infection that really hit home with me. Yeah. And the other thing she mentioned to me, she was like, it, it really made me feel better when you told me it's okay to cough. Come on, hack it up. Yeah. Because the reason she was documented as failing her speaking about trials in the ICU is because according to her story, um, as soon as the patient coughed, the speech pathologist removed it and said, Oh, I'm sorry. You're not tolerating, which is unfortunately that's, one of the best things the patient could do. She's engaging her vocal folds. She's clearing her upper airway. And so again, lack of, of knowledge or maybe lack of training or perhaps fear. I don't know what drove that therapist to um, pull it off as soon as she coughed. Um, probably one of those things, but wow, it had a huge impact on her mental well-being. So that, that's a story that always, always stuck with me. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. I think you, sh- you shared another story too with Lauren, I think when we were getting, when we were working on all your materials for the course. We had a 13 year old young man come into the inpatient rehab hospital and he had uh, so traumatic brain injury and he was mostly just lying in the bed. Um, a little bit more than minimally responsive. We thought he was sort of emerging between a ranches level three and four. And so he had a tracheostomy tube and wasn't, you know, didn't have a valve on. So I put a valve on him and we started and he did get some upper airway, some, some vocalization, some good upper airway movement. 
but he wasn't really engaging with me and responding to my attempts to get him to vocalize more, communicate. So kind of fantastic PT notes. We had, it was a great hospital, um, Shands Rehab Hospital in Gainesville, but, uh, we had a great PT and OT who, um, we love to do co-treats together. And so we decided it would maybe be fruitful to co-treat this young man who wasn't really responding too much, but could tolerate the valve. So I, um, put the valve on. He was not vent dependent. It was trach only. Um, and they started doing some, uh, supported sitting exercises and got him and moving. And once he started moving, he looked like he was starting to wake up. So tried to get him to talk a little bit. And he started making some, some vocalizations toward the end of the session. And, and frankly, this was the, probably the best speech pathology session I ever did, but I didn't really actively and I wasn't super actively involved. I was behind the camera watching this and the, the OT and the PT were asking him questions as they were moving him around and stimulating him. And he was doing the supported sitting and they were working on sitting balance. They were saying, Hey, so-and-so do you like uh, football or baseball? And it was something he was interested in. And so this very soft voice came out. football. And then they started asking him more involved questions like uh, orientation questions. So this kid that we thought, was probably not having a lot of cognitive activity going on, was oriented, (laughs) could talk about baseball, and it was a soft voice. They were short phrases, but this gave us a window into his cognition that had we not put that speaking valve on during his physical stimulation, probably would have never known. So... It, it really, it's like you hear like horror stories about this stuff. Like, you know, person, you know, thought that they were brain dead or something for, you know, months and months and months. And it's like, you never think it can happen like to you or in your field or anything, but like these things do happen in our field and not, you know, from trying to think of the word, not, not from being a bad clinician, but just not, you know, these things are so powerful that we're able to do. Mm -hmm. And it's just, I think, and to be fair to the nurses or the respiratory therapists, the physicians in the ICU, they really are focused on keeping the vitals stable, keeping the patients alive, keeping them out of pain. This does feel a little bit like um, superfluous activity. But what I hope the speech pathologists can do is to really help them understand that this can help them communicate and have a better impact on their care or more accurate, they can actually give you information about their pain levels so that you can medicate them appropriately. And then I uh, had also shared the other day with, with your staff member about there was an ICU nurse I knew who was young and just out of school. And uh, I had talked with him a lot about inline speaking valve placement for vent dependent patients. And he and his, his team and his mentor, cause he was again, just a, a young nurse they were trying to get consent for a surgery from a spinal cord injured patient, high spinal cord injury, um, then dependent patient. And it was a younger fella. And they were using the eye blinks to try to get a yes or no response to get consent for surgery. Mm-hmm. And yeah. this young nurse said, well, I don't know if that really is clear. Can, can we just try putting a speaking valve on him? So at this point they had determined 
from the best information they could gather with eye blanks that they were going to move forward with a surgery. When they put the speaking valve on this patient, and he actually was able to get a, a weak but audible voice out, he said he didn't want the surgery. Yeah. And so that young ther- that young nurse changed the trajectory and allowed for this patient to have that basic human right of determining what they want to have done to them or not. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, I got nothing, Lori. That yeah, was and just as a side. That was my ex-husband. Then. Oh. <laughs> no. Yeah. He, good guy. Yeah. Good guy. Yeah. You know, yeah. we're divorced, but he, no good guy. And um so grateful yeah. that as, as a young nurse, he had, the balls. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> You're not going to put that yeah. on there, are you? Uh, but yeah, he had the balls to, to stand up and say, can we just try this? And thankfully, they were open to the suggestion of this young nurse. I mean, can you imagine? Yeah. No, I just, I, I mean, this is just so profound. You know, I mean, I think, I mean, I have such a deep, deep desire and drive to move our field forward just from stuff I've dealt with with my son, you know, and and crappy therapists that he's, he's had and phenomenal therapists that we owe everything to. And I, I know that our field is just so, so profound. Like there's what else, what other field do you help people with speaking and eating like two of the yeah. most impactful things that, that, that you can do every life. day. So I think, you know, I, yeah. I get so frustrated when, you know, of course our field has burnout. I'm, uh, you know, I'm not denying that at all. You know, of course there's negative things that happen, but I think there's so much of a bigger picture here. And I just want to help SLPs realize that, you know, yeah, it might be tough. It might be tough to assemble a trade team and it's going to be tough to, you know, learn this knowledge and, you know, nobody wants to go back to school or learn extensive medical knowledge when they're 40 years old, but the reality is like this is life-changing work that you are capable of doing if you just put a little bit of time into it. And, you know, there's so many SLPs out there that want to help people or that want to help our colleagues, you know, advance our field some more. And, and I think, you know, your stories obviously show just how profound it really truly is. And mm-hmm. I can't wait for you to teach everybody how to do it now. Yeah. Well, <laughs> so, I'm excited to share what what knowledge I might have. Um, and I'm excited to hear the stories that the clinicians might have to share with me. Yeah. 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 Um, oh, and I do definitely want, you know, as people start registering for the course, um, I think I left some space at the end of the agenda that I want people to submit videos or case histories that either we can talk about or brainstorm together if they have, uh, swelling videos or, you know, something like that to bring in, that would be great. Or even just case, case studies or case reports, that would be super. Cause I'd love to hear that and I'd love to help them then apply what we're going to be learning to some real life scenarios. I could always, you know, bring some of my old ones from back in the day or I could even make some up, but it'd be, it'd be fun if they brought some current patients. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. Um, any, any final thoughts, Lori, anything else you'd like to share? Yes. So a a book and an article and it, it's funny because when I did think about what resources were sort of this, you know, life-changing, if you will, or, you know, had high impact on my career, it was this book about neuroscientific principles of swallowing. And then also uh, and that's the one by um, Art Miller, 
fantastic book, The Neuroscientific Principles of Swallowing and Dysphagia. It was part of a, um, a volume in the Dysphagia series that my mentor, Jay Rosenbeck, edited. Excellent book. It was the first time I really got a super deep dive into the neuroscience behind swallowing. And so that, that's what was so impactful for me. I just, I mean, I was just How old is that book 20 years old. I've never heard of it. <gasps> yeah. Let me, let's see. It is. Um, it's so good. You yeah. really, it's, yeah. it's awesome. And still I need to get some today. of these like book publishers on the podcast, because I feel like there's so many great books yeah. out there that nobody knows about 1999. Yeah, dang. Oh, over, over 20 years ago. But so good and still yeah. relevant today. Yeah. I, don't, I don't think it was updated because it's still so dang good. Um, the other one is the article um, by Ray Kent about the uniqueness of the speech musculature. And again, that was just a seminal paper to talk about these muscles and really highlight some of the similarities, but mostly the, the differences to any other muscle group in the body. And it, the characteristics are amazing. And, and when you think about the same muscles that we activate to swallow are the muscles that activate, but in the opposite direction for inhalation. So for inhalation, they, they activate the opposite direction to uh, prevent collapse of the upper airway. But then when we swallow, they can, they are activated and constricted and to close the chamber and to move you know, food and liquid through. And then you think about all these um, movements that are, are done for co-articulation of speech and vo- voice production and vocal quality just by the changing and activation of these different muscles to create different sounds and resonance. It's, it's amazing. It's amazing. So that's why I think we've still got so far to go to really fill out our understanding of this part of the body that we work with, um, because it is so unlike any other. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. So, yeah. So, and so that's, um, that was kind of funny to me that when you asked to, uh, have me identify what works impacted me the most, that's basically what I'm going to be talking about yeah, this course, yeah, our awesome. scientific principles and, uh, and this unique, amazing part of the body that does so many important and varied functions. Yeah. Breathing, awesome. speaking, swallowing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you, Lori. I can't thank you enough for sharing all your knowledge and wisdom and experience. And I'm just so excited for this course. And I, yeah, I'm so grateful for you and for everything we're going to learn from it. Awesome. Well, I'm excited too. Can't wait. Yeah. Thank you. To download the show notes from this episode, please visit swallowyourpridepodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email so that you'll never miss another episode. If you like what you hear, then please subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, and share it on social media with your friends and colleagues, because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at TeresaRichard.com. Special credit to Danny B. Socrates for her amazing audio and editing skills and to Marissa Hendrickson for managing all the things behind the scenes. As always, thanks so much for listening and see you next week.